Amen. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're teaching a series on the Holy Spirit. And we've kind of jumped around, bounced around from one part of the, what the Bible says about the Holy Ghost to another. Part of what we've looked at are, are um, uh, gifts of the Spirit, or more specifically, as Paul called them, manifestations of the Spirit. And let's talk a little bit more about that tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Notice the word gifts is in italics. Whenever you find a word in the King James translation that's in italics, it means the translators added it. The word was not originally there in the transcript, in the original transcript. And here they were trying to help us to understand. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, the word spiritual in the original Greek is in the plural. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Well, that doesn't make any sense to us. We don't understand that. So they put this word gifts in there to help us understand the word spirituals in the Greek means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So he's saying, now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I think there is a lot of ignorance in the, in the, in the body of Christ about the Holy Ghost and the way he operates. But God doesn't want us to be ignorant, so he gave us some information. Verse 2, you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Apparently, according to historical records that have been unearthed, uh, there were, especially in a place like Corinth, maybe uh, more in Corinth than in other places, but there were all kinds of different idols and temples to different idols and gods and, and things like that, which these people, these Corinthian Christians, uh, came out of. Everybody was an idol worshiper. And in these, uh, the forms of worship that uh, offered under these idols, there were all kinds of things that uh, took place, disgraceful things, certainly, immoral things, certainly. But apparently one of the things that, that uh, took place that was pretty common was that the, uh, the high priests or the priestesses for these false gods in these temples would be involved in either alcohol or uh, drug-related type stuff and many of the drugs that were used were hallucinogenics. And so what would happen is they would fall into these trance, these drug-induced trance, uh, trances. And, uh, uh, and when they spoke, they claimed to be speaking for or on the behalf of the false god that the idol represented. And so that crept into the church. That's the only thing that these people knew. I'm talking about the people of the city of Corinth. That's the only thing they knew about worshiping any kind of god. They came from a very different background and experience than what we have we hear about things like that and we think how could anybody fall for that but that's the only thing they knew and so apparently some of the people would bring that same experience into the uh, the Christian church and there would be things that would be taking place activities and and so forth things that would be taking place that, uh, uh, that confused people because there would be people in these trances that would say that Jesus was accursed. And so Paul is trying to identify first and foremost, first thing he says right out of the box about not wanting the, the church to be ignorant concerning things pertaining to the, and of the Holy Ghost, he tells them that nobody's going to speak against Jesus by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And then he goes further and he says, and nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost too. Now, let's see if we can put this in some kind of context. In Matthew chapter 16, you remember the story where Jesus asked his disciples and he was at a place where there was a, a kind of a, uh, an outdoor strip mall, if you will, concerning false gods and false idols. They were uh, carved into the hillside there and still remain today. These... Um, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for. It's almost like a kiosk at a mall, but it was built into the side of the mountain, carved into the side of the mountain. And there are places, uh, there are frescoes all over the, the hillside there, and there are places that have been carved out where these idols would sit. And there was a, a, like dozens of them. And so you could go, and the people of that area, Caesarea Philippi, would go to this, uh, this place to worship all different kinds of false gods. And so they'd just start going up and down the row, offering sacrifices and worshiping these false gods and so forth. Well, you remember that was that uh, uh, in that situation, 
Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter answered for the group, and he said, apparently there were some different ideas about who Jesus was. He said, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Both of those people were dead. Or some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, and those people were dead too. So there were a lot of people apparently, or some people at least, that were mixing in reincarnation, the idea of reincarnation, with what Jesus was doing in Jesus' earthly ministry. And then Jesus turned around and said to Peter, who do you say I am? You remember Peter's response? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him. He said several things to him. But one thing that I want to point out is he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. In other words, he said, you're not convinced by the miracles. You're not convinced by the words that I've taught. This is revelation from the Holy Ghost that enables you to see and understand and identify who I am. Well, the Bible says from that point, Jesus began to clearly teach them. This was apparently at the end of his earthly ministry. And so Jesus began to plainly teach, not with parables, not with riddles or any other way. Jesus began to plainly teach them and tell them that he was going to Jerusalem. He told them that he's going to be taken captive by the, the Jews and turned over to the Romans. He told them that he was going to be beaten and crucified. He told them that he would raise, be raised again the third day, rise from the dead. At that point, Peter, same one that said just a few verses before that Jesus was the Messiah, Peter says, not so, Lord. These things aren't really going to happen to you. Do you remember how Jesus responded to him? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, he's not calling Peter Satan. But what he's identifying is just as Peter spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in identifying who Jesus is, being the Christ, in the same way, now he's speaking by the inspiration of the evil one, contradicting and standing in the way of, or at least trying to, standing in the way of God's will. And Jesus calls that influence of the devil. Now, I'm sure when Peter was told by Jesus that he was speaking by the, the Holy Ghost, the revelation of the Holy Ghost, he probably felt real good about that. I doubt very seriously if he understood that, what that meant. I doubt very seriously if he's telling Jesus, I've had a vision, I've had a supernatural revelation, so I know who you are. He's just saying what he's been convinced of by his time with Jesus. And Jesus says that that was the Holy Ghost upon him and working in him to bring him to that knowledge. But in the same way, Peter says something that, that uh, is an attempt to obstruct what the plan and the purpose of God is for Jesus concerning his crucifixion and his resurrection. So when we look at it in those terms and apply that to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Paul, by the Spirit of God, is saying very simply that when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation, he's always going to point to Jesus. He's always going to magnify Jesus. He's always going to speak in a way that lifts Jesus up and draws attention to him rather than draws attention to man. Now he gets back to talking about manifestations of the Spirit in verse 4. He says there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Notice that word gifts is not in italics. He's really talking about something that's been given. There are four different words in the New Testament that are used for gifts. And there's a, a little difference of meaning in all the four of the words. The word that's used here means something that is given like a birthday gift. A free will gift, a free will offering because of the grace of the giver. So he says there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit. There are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations but it's the same God which worketh all in all. Notice concerning these things he talks about gifts in relation to the spirit. He talks about administrations in relation to the Lord. He talks about diversity of operations in relation to God. So apparently... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost all have a part in these works of the Spirit of God. There are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. In the original, every time gifts of healings are mentioned, both gifts and healings are in the plural. There is not a gift of healing. 
there are gifts of healings. Different gifts for different sicknesses and diseases. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these work at that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. I want you to notice, folks, that Paul is really clear about uh, concerning the manifestations of the spirit, whether they're revelation manifestations, whether they're power revelation or power uh, manifestations of the spirit or utterance manifestations of the spirit, whether they do something, reveal something, or say something. These all work by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. These all work as he wills. Let's talk about that for a little bit. You remember that the Bible tells us about Jesus before he began his earthly ministry. He went to John the Baptist and was baptized of John in the Jordan River. You remember that? And the Bible says that at that time when he came up out of the water, it says there was a voice from heaven, God the Father, that, sat, that spoke clearly in a language that everybody could understand. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, talking about Jesus. And the Bible also says that everybody there witnessed the fact that something came from heaven. They recognized that it was the Holy Ghost. I don't know if they recognized it at the, uh, at the time that it happened. But they came to understand that it was the Holy Ghost that came from heaven like a, uh, a bird would fly from the air and land on something. Well, it landed on Jesus. And it stayed there. Everybody recognized that whatever it was, and now we know that it was the Holy Ghost, came down, landed on Jesus, and stayed. So you've got all, me all three members of the Trinity in operation in one place. God the Father who spoke from heaven, Jesus who was baptized and begins his earthly ministry, and the Holy Ghost that came upon him from heaven as a dove. Now the Bible says that for immediately following that, uh, Luke chapter 4 gives you this information. It says that immediately following that, Jesus went into the wilderness, and he was out there for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he was tempted of the devil. Now, folks, Jesus wasn't tempted for 40 days. He didn't go out to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He went out in the wilderness to separate himself unto God for the three years of ministry that was upcoming. When he got out there and he had fasted to a point where from his flesh he would have been weak, then the devil came and tried to get him off track and tried to make him disobey the word, step outside of God's will. And the Bible tells us that in each of those three temptations, Jesus answered in the same way, and that was he quoted the word. Now, when Jesus dealt with the devil, and we have the example that he quoted the word to overcome him, to overcome the temptation, shouldn't that be a pretty good pattern for us to follow? He's telling us, or rather he's showing us, the Holy Ghost gave us a record of how to defeat temptation. Speak the word and stick to what it says instead of what the devil's trying to get you to do. Well, after that was over, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 said, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. Now think about that phrase. He returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. Do you remember that time and time and uh, time again, Jesus would tell the people that it wasn't him that was doing the works? He told his disciples that. He told the crowd that was gathered around whenever these things would happen. He said, it's not me doing the works, it's the Father in me. Now, how could the Father be in him? Well, very simply, it was by the Holy Ghost. We have to recognize that when the Holy Ghost came upon Jesus in bodily shape as a dove, the miracles began to take place. Well, why did the miracles take place then? we have to conclude that the miracles were not a result of his relationship with God. And what I mean that, by that, and I'm certainly not uh, criticizing or demeaning or, or playing it down in any way whatsoever, but Jesus was just as much the Son of God at age 29 as he was at age 30. So if it was his relationship with God the Father in and of itself, then he could have been doing healing miracles from the time he was old enough to know what, he, what they were. But the only way that the Father in him could do the works would be by the Holy Ghost. And so when Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, that's when the miracles began to take place. The early church understood this, at least the apostles did, because you may remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes down to Cornelius' house and preaches Jesus to them, 
his message is simply this. Acts 10, 38, he said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus is saying that the Holy Ghost, or Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is the one that, that spoke Acts 10, 38. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost to identify that it was the power of the Holy Ghost in and on Jesus that enabled him to do the healings and the miracles. Now, folks, I'm going to draw on your memory a little bit here. You remember that John, in telling us about, giving us details about the uh, talk that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified. The last night at the Last Supper, Jesus told them a lot of things, but most of what he told them about was the Holy Ghost. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I, I go unto my Father. Now, why? Well, he said time and time again, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter will come. I'll send the Comforter in my name, and he will abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but you know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be with you. He's telling them over and over again, it's better for you that I go away. Once they hear, once they, the disciples, hear that Jesus is going away and they won't be able, they won't be able to see him any longer in the way that they were, that dominates everything about their thinking. They became grieved because of that. They're hoping that this isn't true. They're trying to find a way for this to be done in, a, in some different manner. And as a result, it seems to me like they missed a lot of things that Jesus was saying. Now, the Holy Ghost brought it back to their, their remembrance at a later time, certainly. But they're so grieved about Jesus going away, they don't seem to care about the Holy Ghost. They don't seem to care about the Comforter. They keep turning back to Jesus saying, but why do you have to go away? One of the Gospels even said that when Jesus, a little bit later, when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane and asked his disciples to pray with it, and he comes back and finds them sleeping, you remember, this happens two or three times. One of the reasons that it says is they were sleeping for sorrow. They were so impacted and so affected by the fact, the realization, apparently Jesus has convinced them that he's going away. And they're so affected by that that it brings some kind of grief upon them that they don't know how to handle. I don't know if that's the only reason why they went to, to sleep when Jesus needed his, their help in prayer, but it's one of the things that the Bible identifies. So when Peter tells Cornelius in his household how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing those that are oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. When he shares those things, he's also reminded and remembering what Jesus said after he was raised from the dead and just before he was caught up into heaven. He said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit because you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, folks, if Jesus told us the truth, and thank God he did, but if Jesus told us the truth about him not being the one doing the works, but the Father that was in him by the Spirit of God is the one that do, does the works, and if the Holy Ghost who was given to them brought power to the church, and if Peter told us the truth by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that it was the anointing of the Holy Ghost that was upon Jesus that did the works. Remember, that's the same Holy Ghost Jesus said he would send us. No wonder it's better for us that Jesus went because we couldn't have had the Holy Ghost any other way. It would have been impossible. Now that means if Jesus was operating according to the Father's will, and remember he said, I always do those things that please my Father. Jesus could not have ever stepped outside of God's will and still been a perfect sacrifice, right? Well, when Jesus identifies that it's the Holy Ghost in him that's doing the works, when he identifies his relationship with the Father and the evidence, the proof of the Holy Ghost being the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he did, therefore, since the Bible tells us that the Holy Ghost manifests himself according to his will, then Jesus was being led by the Holy Ghost every day of his life to do, to go where he wanted him to go, to do what he wanted him to do, and to operate as he was led at, the, at each point in time. Then that means it was the will of God. If we want to see what the will of the Holy Ghost is, if we want to identify 
the will of the Holy Ghost, all we have to do is look at Jesus' ministry in the early days of the church. Now, we know that Jesus was willing to heal. He was willing to help. He was willing to, uh, to do miracles when necessary to be an aid and a comfort to the people. And there were, but there were several occasions. The most notable one was in his own hometown of Nazareth that Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6 tells us about. There were places where it was the will of God for people to be healed, but they weren't healed. You remember Jesus stood up in his, the synagogue in his own hometown, the place where he grew up. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And he quoted from Isaiah. We know of it as Isaiah chapter 61. But he quoted from Isaiah's writings, or literally read from it, didn't quote it, he read from it. And it went something like this. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. He's anointed me to preach recovering of sight to the blind. He's anointed me to set at liberty them that are bruised. And he's anointed me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, if Jesus is saying, and he does conclude that, he gives the, the scrolls back to the uh, priest of the synagogue, leader of the synagogue. And then he sits down and then he says this. He says, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying without any doubt, not in some kind of parable or some kind of thing that they need to figure out. He speaks clearly and plainly and says, these scriptures are talking about me. Well, everybody knows those scriptures that he refers to are pertaining to the Messiah. So when Jesus said, these things are talking about me, this day, uh, this day these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. He's very plainly saying, I'm the Messiah. Now, remember, he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to do something. When Peter talked about him being anointed of the Spirit, again, Acts 10, 38, he said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power who went about doing good and healing. Healing has to be good then. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. That means that it's the will of God, Peter's understanding as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost and the record that the Holy Ghost saves for us in Acts chapter 10 is that it's the will of God for everybody to be healed. But everybody wasn't healed. In his own hometown of Nazareth, he marveled because of their unbelief. It says he could there do no mighty work. Now, folks, back to where we started. We're thinking about the will of the Spirit of God. When Jesus says, I'm anointed, he's identifying that the, the, the will of the Spirit of God is to minister healing and help and deliverance to the people that are in Nazareth. But the people in Nazareth derailed God's plan. They detoured God's plan, aborted God's plan, really, because they refused to believe. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. So that tells us that the will of the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit willed to open blind eyes in Nazareth, the will of the Holy Spirit was thwarted or aborted. They failed to receive what God had for them, what the will of the Father was for them because of their own unbelief. So there are rules that govern the will of the, the Spirit then. Well, if faith is necessary to receive healing from God, then faith would be necessary, which is the manifestation of the Holy Ghost on Jesus. Then any other manifestation of the Holy Ghost has to have faith mixed with it too then. The Holy Ghost would work the same. If he's the same Holy Ghost, he's got to work the same way in our day as he did in Jesus' ministry. He has to work the same way in our day as he did in the early days of the church. So what does God will? What does the Spirit of God will? Now, let me make a distinction between something here. When we talk about the will of God, I generally think big picture all of the things that God wants. For example, I know that since Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness and poverty, then that identifies for me that God wants everybody well. He wants everybody forgiven of their sins. He wants everybody to be a success in life. So I understand that as the general and overriding will of God. But when I talk about the will of God, particularly tonight, I'm not talking about the overriding will of God. I'm not talking about the general or the universal will of God. I'm talking about what does the Holy Ghost will to happen in each and individual setting or situation. 
We know that the, the way things are going in Corinth, even though they have all of the nine manifestations of the Spirit in operation in their church, it's not the will of God, or maybe we should say it this way, they're handling the operation of the Spirit of God through them in a way that doesn't bring the greatest effective or the greatest uh, results, the most effective way to get results, and they're not operating according to the love of God. You remember Jesus or um, Paul made a big deal about how we're dealing with the Lord's Supper. They weren't treating it as a ritual of the church. They weren't treating it as a spiritual meaning, having great in, uh, spiritual impact. They were treating it just like it was a, a um, potluck dinner. And rather than making sure that everybody had something so that they could worship God through the Passover or through the Lord's Supper, they were, there were some in the church that were overindulging and getting drunk and nobody else had anything that they could worship God with in the communion. Now, why would he make a big deal about that? Because he's trying to accomplish what the will of God is for all the people in that church. I would hate to imagine, I can't even, I can't even guess, what the results that the church, the modern-day church receives or enjoys as opposed to the will of God for what he, God wants us to have. Specifically, I'm talking about there are times when God wants to move in services or in your life or in, in some way to help people, whether inside the church walls or outside the church walls. Really, if you look at what the Bible tells us, there's a lot greater uh, example of the manifestation of the Spirit outside the church walls than there is, than there is inside. The vast majority are outside the church walls. So how many times does the Holy Ghost want to do something, but because we either don't know, because of ignorance, or we don't mix faith with what the Holy Ghost is trying to prompt us to do, or just simply ignore it, which I'm sure happens in a lot of cases. I wonder how many things could be accomplished and the Holy Ghost wants to accomplish, but, he does, but we don't know how to cooperate with it. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Ghost divides these things severally as he wills. As he wills. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at some things here in the scripture that can identify for us the will of the Spirit and what God wants to take place. Verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together. And they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. I want you to get that, folks. The Bible does not say they spoke these languages. It said they heard them speak in their own languages. Now, either way, it's miraculous. Either way, it's a work of God, a miracle work of God, for somebody to be speaking a language that they don't know that somebody else listening does know. Or it could have been a miracle that took place in the ear of all the people where the 120 are speaking in tongues but the hearers hear it as their own language. There's no way you can tell from the, the language that's used, the Greek text, the original text, there's no way to tell which one it is. But either way, it's a miracle of God. Would you agree? And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? And how hear we every man our own tongue wherein we were born? And it tells us some things about where the hearers were from. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene the strang and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Notice it keeps saying we hear them speak. We hear them speak. It could be that the emphasis is on the hearing because that's where the miracle took place not in the, the individual speaking in tongues. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? 
Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. That always tickles me. Peter says it's too early for us to get drunk. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into, into blood before that great and noble, notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He goes on and speaks some more things. But he identifies the outpouring of the Holy Ghost from the beginning of the church through the tribulation period. He identifies. Now, folks, remember, this is Peter speaking. He's not a scholar of anything. He may know something about fishing because that's his trade. But he's speaking things that could only be by the knowledge of the Holy Ghost, divine revelation of the Spirit of God. Peter continues to speak to them, and the Bible tells us that there were 3,000 people, I believe, that got saved that day because of his, uh, his sermon. Very simple sermon, full of divine revelation for him. But it's a very simple sermon. And as a result, 3,000 uh, people got saved. So what's the will of the Holy Ghost here? The will of the Holy Ghost has to be that he wanted to demonstrate in fulfilling the prophecy of Joel, he wanted to demonstrate at a time and at a place where people from a dozen different countries, I would assume there's close to 12 of them that we read there in those few verses, but where people were gathered from all corners of the world. Now, those people that were gathered and heard these things heard Peter speak. They didn't stay in Jerusalem. After the feast, they went back home. And so you've got an instant outreach to the world. You've got an instant outreach to the four corners of the earth. Folks, I think if nothing else, we can identify from this that the Holy Ghost knows how to reach a lot more people than we do. Here's one event at one specific point in time. If it had happened any other way, it wouldn't have been as effective. wouldn't have had the same impact. If it had happened at another time, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But God seems to know what he's doing when it comes to the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Now, there were two manifestations of the Spirit here. One was where the people were, uh, uh, the 120 were filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. They were all filled. Nobody was left out because that's God's plan and purpose for all of us. Not only to be born again, but to be filled with his Spirit. God wants us to have the power that comes as a result of the Holy Ghost coming upon us just like he wanted it for them. Now, for them, they had to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost was poured out. We don't have to wait because the Holy Ghost has already been poured out. The second thing that took place here in Acts chapter 2 is the anointing that came upon Peter to preach things and to say things that I doubt very seriously if he had any knowledge of prior to. What does he know about Joel's prophecy? What does he know about the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Well, he didn't seem to know anything about it until it took place, until the Holy Ghost was poured out, until he began to speak with other tongues just like the rest of the 120 did. Now, all of a sudden, here's the inspiration of the Spirit of God to preach a message that brings 3,000 peoples into the kingdom of God on the first day. Folks, that's a pretty good church growth model. Now, look at chapter 3. Remember what we're the foundation of what we're talking about. When it comes to the manifestation of the Spirit, they're divided or they operate according to the will of the Holy Ghost. What else does the Holy Ghost will for the church? Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. 
who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. That means he's asking for money. He's begging for money. And Peter fastening his eyes on him with John said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Well, the answer to that is because they've never seen anything like it. But Peter seems to take the attitude almost nonchalantly that, oh, yeah, this is the way it's always supposed to work. Now, folks, this was a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. It was either gifts of healings in operation or the gift of faith that was in operation. Now, if you'll, if you'll notice, and, and we won't have time to look at it in detail tonight, but if you'll take notice of the things that the Bible says about Peter, Nearly everybody that was healed in Peter's ministry that the Bible identifies specifically was crippled or paralyzed or something. And then there were other times where Peter would operate by the gift of faith when he raised Dorcas from the dead, uh, for example. That has to be the gift of faith because nobody has natural human faith for that. And so it could be a specific manifestation of the Holy Ghost that was on Peter. In this manner. We know also when we look over at Acts chapter 8. And it tells us about Philip going down to Samaria and preaching Christ. It says the people gave heed to the things that he said. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And then it tells us what miracles took place. It says many that were taken with palsies that were, uh, that were lame were healed. And many evil spirits came out of those that were possessed with them. Now it says many it doesn't say all. In other words, it's telling us that the great revival that Philip had that turned the whole city of Samaria upside down. It may have been that not everybody was healed. It may have been that not everybody in town was delivered. And that certainly was the case in Jesus' ministry. There was, for example, in John chapter 5, when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda. He asked this man, Will you be healed? And the crippled man complains to him and says, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. Remember that at a certain season, randomly, they didn't know when it was going to be. But some, uh, from time to time, the angel would come down from heaven and stir the waters up. And the first one that got in after the angel stirred the waters was healed. And so this guy's complaining. He says, I, can't, I don't have any chance to be the first one in. Before I can get down there, somebody jumps in in front of me. Apparently, they did not have a number system like the post office or Baskin-Robbins has where everybody gets a ticket. And you could well understand that. Would you want to wait in a long line if you could get there first? It gives me the impression that people weren't interested in anybody but themselves. But the Holy Ghost manifested himself, and Jesus told him to rise and walk. Now, what was that? Well, it was either special faith or gift of healing. We know that was the result that it brought. And the important thing is, uh, oh, let me finish my thought. And so after this man was healed, Jesus conveyed himself away. This guy didn't even recognize who Jesus was. He didn't even have a chance to keep his eyes on Jesus and thank him. Because everybody saw this new means or new way or new method of healing. And Jesus conveyed himself away. He just slipped through the crowd and got outside of the crowd. Now, this was the Sabbath day, and when the Jews brought this man under question because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, they tell him that he's being a lawbreaker. He, they tell him he's breaking the law of Moses. And he said, the guy that healed me told me to rise, take up my bed, and walk. So I did. And he said, well, who was it? The Jews asking him, who was this? And the guy didn't know. He didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't have any, any means or any way to recognize him. 
there had been no contact between this guy and Jesus in his, during his earthly ministry, obviously. And so he didn't know who it was. Well, what about the other people? It says there were five porches full of people that were sick and halt and lamed and had other sicknesses or diseases. What about them? Not one more person at that place was healed. Not one more. Now, some people look at that and say, well, see, that proves that it's not God's will to heal everybody. And their attitude or idea is if anybody had the same power that the apostles had in the early part of the book of Acts, then they could just go into any hospital and clear out the hospital of everybody that's sick. But Jesus didn't do that. See, the important thing is not that not everybody was healed when Jesus was here on the earth. The important thing to recognize is that there was, is that there was nobody that came to Jesus that failed to receive. There are a couple of instances, John chapter 5 being one of them, where Jesus went out of his way and initiated by the Holy Ghost brought healing to somebody that wasn't expecting it. They certainly wanted it. Everybody that's sick wants to be well. But it was not them coming to Jesus. It was not them expressing faith in God or faith in what they heard Jesus do in his earthly ministry. It was more an act of the Holy Ghost that reached out to people that showed them God's goodness. But there's only a couple of cases of that. But what you do find is that everybody that came to Jesus received their healing. There was not one person that failed to receive. Even though there were a couple of instances where the people didn't know how to believe or there was something that kept them from believing. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it talked about the leper that came to Jesus and said, good master or rabbi, he said, I know you can heal me if you will. Well, there's no way he can exercise faith to receive his healing as long as the question is there about the will of God for him. Jesus immediately moved with compassion, reached out and touched him and said, I will. And he was made whole. That's the only example we've got of anybody in the hundreds or thousands or however how many people Jesus ministered to in those three years. That's the only example, the only instance where anybody came to Jesus questioning his will to heal. Only one. Jesus answers the question, I will be thou made whole or be thou cleansed. And immediately his leprosy left him. So he was telling the truth. He did believe that the power of God was on Jesus to do the work. He just wasn't sure if it was God's will for him. And as soon as Jesus says he wills, I will be thou clean, his leprosy disappeared. There was another instance in Mark chapter 9 where the father brings his son that's possessed of the devil to the disciples. Jesus and his three disciples that make up the inner circle were away at the time. And when Jesus can, and his, the other three come back to where the others are, they see a crowd around the disciples. And the scribes were questioning them, and that never was a good thing. And so he comes in the midst of the, the group and says, what's going on? And the father of the child speaks up and says, I brought my son to your disciples to deliver him of this evil affliction. And they couldn't heal him. They couldn't rescue him. They couldn't get his deliverance. Jesus then says to the father, how long must I suffer you? Bring him unto me. He's, well, I left out the first part. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. He's identifying to the Father that the Father is not operating in faith, which is the only thing the Bible ever tells us stops the healing power of God from working is an absence of faith or unbelief. So Jesus starts talking to the Father. The Son falls down before him, before Jesus, and starts going into one of these fits or seizures or whatever it is that we would describe it, however is best to describe the situation that he has. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been this way? And he said, since he was a young child. Then he gives some details. He says, oftentimes, this situation casts him into the water, into the fire to destroy him. But then he says to Jesus, the father says to Jesus, but if thou canst do anything, help us. Jesus turns it right back on him. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. 
You remember what the father said next? The father with tears cried out and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like great faith to me. But it is faith. It is a measure of faith. And so Jesus cast the devil out of this little boy. Another seizure gripped him. He fell down and he looked like he was dead. But then Jesus reached down, took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was whole. Not one time, you cannot find one example, one instance, where anybody came to Jesus to receive their healing and failed to get it. Even when they didn't start off in faith. Not one time. That's the pattern I believe the Holy Ghost is trying to save for us by giving us these examples in these stories that we've just related, as well as many others. It's the will of God for everybody to receive. But God can't make you have faith. He can give you the means whereby you can develop faith. And that's the word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. Anybody can develop faith by hearing the word. The leper did that in Matthew chapter 8. He didn't believe or didn't know to believe that Jesus was willing to heal him. He did believe that Jesus had the power to do it, but he didn't know if it was God's will. And as soon as Jesus said, I will, be thou clean, that gives him the answer. That answers the unbelief that's holding him back. And then his faith takes over and he receives healing from his leprosy. His leprosy was cleansed. We've got example after example where the Holy Ghost wills to manifest himself to bring help, deliverance, and healing to people. Let's keep reading here in Acts chapter 3. Again, we'll start in verse 12. When Peter saw the people coming together, he answered them and said, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though our, by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? Folks, notice how specific the Holy Ghost is when he tries to teach us. There's so much of the church world that today says that the apostles had some special power that we don't have. And so the healing power of God was done away with when the last apostle died. And then others will say, well, the apostles needed that kind of power or had that kind of power because of their special relationship that they had with God. But those are the two things that Peter says was not the case. Now, who's going to know? People that are developing theories today about why the power of God doesn't work or somebody that was used with the power, used in delivering that power of God to other people. Peter said, why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? He's saying it's not special power for us that made him walk. He says it's not some special holiness or place we have, relationship we have with God that made it work. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God has raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. Now folks, remember, it's been, well, there were 50 days between the uh, um, Passover and Pentecost. We don't know how much after the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 3 is. But the implication is that it happened pretty soon after the church came into the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So let's say it was another month. What would that be? That would be uh, uh, 80 days, still less than three months. Surely we've got it in, within that time frame. Within that three-month period of time, just three months or so earlier, Peter who's standing up and talking to the ones that had something to do with crucifying Jesus. Remember, Peter and the rest of the disciples were huddled up behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jews. They don't seem to be afraid anymore. Folks, I want you to understand something else about the will of the Spirit of God. It is the will of the Spirit of God to manifest himself in some way, in ways, plural, in ways that bring confidence and boldness to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in the face of any and all that the devil would use or influence to try to stop us. I mean, this is real life action and activity that if God be for us, who cares who's against us? 
So what did the work, Peter? Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You see that phrase, the faith which is by him? I think Peter's identifying the gift of faith. I can't be completely sure. But that's a strange way to say it if he's not talking about the gift of faith. Smith Wigglesworth was a man, a minister in England. He died in 1941, I believe it was, just before World War II started out, or just before America got into World War II. But he was used of God in a tremendous way where the gift of faith was concerned. And it took him a long time in ministry to figure out this was that the faith that he had was not the faith that everybody else seems to have. And I've noticed this through the years I've spent in ministry and seeing other people being used of God in this way. People that have a gift of faith, they don't recognize it's extraordinary faith. They don't recognize that it's any faith that everybody else, they think that it's the same faith that everybody else has. At least for a period of time, maybe even a short period of time. But faith on any level, in any measure, makes what God has for you to do, what he speaks to you to do, seem like the most natural thing in the world. Willersworth raised a number of people from the dead in his ministry, and he said this, from, uh, I believe it was the first time that he raised somebody from the dead. There were 20, 24, 26 instances of people that were raised from the dead in his ministry, so forgive me if I get them mixed up. But he said that the first time that God used him in this, he said, I penetrated heaven with my prayer. And the answer was no, talking about to raise somebody up. It was a family member. He said, I penetrated heaven with my prayer, and the answer was no. But then he said this, but then there was a faith that came down from heaven upon me, and it wouldn't take no for an answer. That's the best description of the gift of faith I think I'll ever hear. From somebody that experienced it, somebody that was used in that way. I think that's what Peter is saying here. And his name, through faith in his name, yea, even the faith which is by him has made this man perfectly whole before you. If we look a little further, I know I'm out of time, but if we look a little further into the scriptures, we'll see in Acts chapter 8, the example of Philip going down to Samaria. We talked about that a little bit before. Apparently, it was the will of the Spirit to manifest himself in gifts of healings and deliverance, casting out devils, which may be a, a, a part of the gift of faith also sometimes at least. You remember in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas cast the devil out of the little girl that was a fortune teller? It said, after many days when she would cry out, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who have come to show us the way to God. It says that Paul was grieved after many days, and I don't know how many is. I don't know how many, many days would mean. But it says she did this for many days. And then finally it came to the point where Paul was grieved in his spirit and turned around and spoke to the evil spirit in her, and he came out. Now, what was it? that took place for Paul to be able to do that. If Paul had the authority to cast out devils out of anybody and everybody, no matter what, why didn't he do it on day one? He only took the action that he did after the Holy Ghost had come on him and prompted him and influenced him to do it. Well, that looks like the gift of faith to me. He had faith to do something that otherwise he wouldn't have had. Where'd the faith come from? Well, it, had, it says he was grieved in his spirit, so it had to come from the Holy Ghost. So in that case, in that instance, it was the will of the Spirit, just like in Acts chapter 8, it was the will of the Spirit to demonstrate the power of the name of Jesus to a town that didn't know what, anything about it. A town that did not know, that certainly didn't have a church, was not acquainted with the name of Jesus, was not acquainted with the work that Jesus had done in Galilee and in Jerusalem, didn't know anything about the healing miracles, so here's the will of the Holy Ghost to bring forth the same results. Remember Jesus said, John chapter 14, 
The works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. The Holy Ghost seems to make that good on occasion as he wills. Then if we get over to Acts chapter 9, it tells us about Peter going to the town of Joppa, being summoned to the town of Joppa. Apparently there was a rich widow that died. Her name was Dorcas. And Peter was summoned. She had been known for doing good works and for making coats and, and so forth. Apparently she was a woman of some means, but she had died. And when Peter got there, they took her to where she was, took him to where she was. It says she was washed and prepared for burial. Folks, that may mean, we don't know for sure, but that may mean that her body was drained of blood. And she was ready to be buried. Peter put them all out, prayed, knelt down and said, Tabitha, arise. And she did. Folks, that's got to be the gift of faith. And again, that's Peter. It seems that God used him specifically in that way. Now, when we read these stories in the book of Acts, we read them in the Gospels. We read the things Jesus did in the Gospels. And it's easy just to fall back to say, well, that was Jesus. And think that he was in a class by himself. Now, as being the first begotten from the dead, as being God's only begotten son coming to the earth, absolutely he was in a, in a class by himself. But Jesus never told anybody, any of his disciples, he never told anyone that they couldn't do what he was doing. But rather he gave them authority over sickness and disease so that they would do what he was doing. So he didn't try to hoard anything for himself. There's one instance where James and John came to him and said, we saw somebody casting out devils in your name. But he wasn't part of our group, so we told him to stop. Well, who was this guy? We have no idea. But apparently he had had enough interaction with Jesus or been a part of the, the sermons that Jesus had preached in and around the area where he lived so that he recognized that it was the name of Jesus that was doing the work and that carried power for the work to be done. So he started doing it too. He wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of the 70. He's just some random guy out there that comes to the understanding that the power of the name of Jesus casts out devils. So he's casting out devils. Jesus told his disciples, don't try to stop people like that. He said, if they're not against us, then they're for us. All of these things were at the will of the Spirit of God. And that's the thing that I want to hammer in. The Holy Ghost doesn't have to be talked into wanting to do good things. The Holy Ghost doesn't have to be talked into wanting to manifest the power of God. The Holy Ghost doesn't have to be talked into manifesting the revelation gifts of the Spirit or the power gifts of the Spirit or the utterance gifts of the Spirit or any manifestation there is of the Holy Ghost whatsoever. He wants to do these things. He wants to show himself strong. He wants to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in the earth. That's his job. But I think so often we have the attitude and the idea that God just doesn't move like that anymore. Well, if we're working by the same Holy Spirit that Jesus worked with and performed healing mir healings and miracles because of, at what point in time did the Holy Ghost change? Thank God he never changes. He wants to do the same things now that we read about him doing in Jesus' ministry and doing the same things that we read about in the early days of the church. One final thought about this thing in Acts chapter 9 where Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. By the way, did you know that the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates... Uh, October 25th is the celebration of Dorcas. Do you know that? Well, that's true. This situation where he raised Dorcas, where Peter raised Dorcas from the dead, obviously it's a gift of faith in operation. Obviously there are other manifestations of the Spirit in operation too. For example, whatever she died of, if, she's, if, uh, if a gift of healing is not in work, at work when she's raised from the dead, then she'd just die again. And since the Bible identifies specifically that her body was washed and prepared for burial, 
it could very well be that God miraculously replaced blood in her body. None of those things seem to be too hard for God. And here's God showing, by the will of the Spirit of God, showing that the church can raise the dead just like Jesus raised the dead. Now, certainly we can't do these things on our own. But it's the will of the Spirit of God for these things to happen. And all we have to do is believe for them. All we have to do is pray for them and reverence these things when the Holy Ghost begins to manifest. Jesus said, they that love him, he will manifest himself to, the, to us. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the helper. We thank you that he is our advocate, our counselor, our comforter, our helper, our intercessor, our strengthener, and our standby. Holy Spirit, we give you free reigning course in this church and in these people that you might manifest yourself according to your will, not according to ours, but according to your will, so that the power that's in the name of Jesus can be seen and known, and Jesus can be magnified as Lord and Savior. Have your way in us, Holy Spirit. Glorify the name of Jesus. Glorify our risen Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank you for being here, folks.